Welcome to the Science Witch Podcast, where we explore how science and witchcraft intersect, interact, and affirm one another. I'm your co-host, Angel. And I'm your co-host, Ruby, and this is our 55th episode. Today, we're presenting our Thanksgiving episode with artist and activist, Jesse Lee. This is what we're going to term as our Thanksgiving episode, insofar as mushrooms give us something to feel grateful for and not glorify a colonizer whitewashed myth holiday. We here at the Science Witch Podcast advocate for land back and support indigenous stewardship to land. Mushrooms are a perennial topic on this podcast, and so after getting to go mushroom hunting with Jesse a few weeks back and finding chanterelles, because I took them to my secret chanterelle spot where I reliably find chanterelles every season. And I was talking to them about coming on the podcast and invite them on the show to talk about mushrooms, art, politics, and witchcraft, as well as feature their art for this month's sticker, which I will be using as the art for this episode. Hi, Jesse was absolutely a delight to have on the show, and this was also their first time on as a guest on a podcast of any kind. So honestly, I'm we're pretty honored to have have them on for their first time. That was a, it was a good time. I especially love getting to talk with them about the kinds of people that we need to be able to strategically have honest discussions with to foster long-lasting positive change. Yeah, definitely. And also, as a result of this episode, I've been obsessively listening to Cosmo Sheldrake's entire discography while simultaneously listening to Entangled Life by his brother Merlin Sheldrake on audiobook. And once you listen to this episode, you'll understand why. We reference it quite a bit throughout this podcast, and I am going to have to listen to this book once I'm done with it. A second time because it's really just the peak of science writing the way merlin is able to articulate a lot of what would otherwise be dry scientific research into something that is so profound and interesting and poetic is really just in many ways peak science writing and it's also just so many fascinating connections for someone like me who was an academic who has published in the mycorrhizal literature and i have now become a more radical mycologist as well as mycoevangelist and podcaster so i want to give a shout out to my advisor dr jason hoxima who recommended this book to me and he is also having his mycology class read And now I have to recommend it all to all of y'all out there, as well as listen to the book as well with the music from his brother, because there's a lot of similar themes. I, oh my God, I, I got into Cosmos Sheldrake about a year ago after my partner started getting into like foraging and just kind of mushrooms in general. I swear, like... I'm I'm the person who is the music major, but my partner is really the one who saves like buttloads of all the really cool music out there. It was amongst those collections that the Cosmo Sheldrake song "Entangled Life" of the same name as the book uh, was in the mix, and we just also come along. Those those two songs are kind of 
our favorites, and I, I love that we loved those before you and I even met Angel. Yes, that was actually one of the things that brought us together, which mm-hmm. I find was a one of those synchronicities that came back absolutely full circle for us when we made the connection that the author of the book that I referenced so much in this episode and one of our favorite musical artists are actually family. And that kind of felt like one of those beautiful synchronicities that affirmed what we're doing here at the Science Witch Podcast. Yeah. And then we even talk a little bit about the synergy between art and music and how creative endeavors fostered by a collaborative symbiosis helps resource our community of creatives, much like Funkel Network's resource a forest. And this idea of creativity as a form of divinity that each of us are able to take part in in our own unique way is something I credit the artist's way, which I sent to you recently, and to helping bring into my own personal spiritual philosophy of being both an artist and a content creator. And This is one of the ways I find a lot of gratitude for all the amazing creative people I get to meet and work with, with this podcast, including you, Ruby. Hmm. That's heartwarming. Thank you. I love that. So, So without further ado, let's welcome Jesse Lee for our Thanksgiving episode. All right. Well, hello. Thank you for tuning in today for this episode of the Science Witch Podcast. Today we have a personal friend and also fellow artist that we're going to be talking to today. And also we have Ruby today in the interview. So yay. Hello. Yeah. And so Jesse, I thought we could go ahead and start out by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and talking a little bit about who you are and what it is that you are an artist about. Well, I'm really nobody. My name is Jesse Lee Bachman. I'm a local artist from here in Salem, Oregon. You could, I guess, say I'm an activist. I have feelings about that term, but I think it's one that people can broadly understand. I'm a mycophile. Yeah, I'm a lover of knowledge and wisdom in all of its forms, and I make pictures. Yeah, and actually, that was one of the ways that you and I connected, is you have this fantastic shirt that we're also going to be using the image to make stickers on. So those of y'all who are Patreon supporters or want to be Patreon supporters, this amazing artwork that Jesse does is going to be part of our next sticker. And I'm actually wearing the shirt right now. It's a really cool image of a mushroom person sitting in the mycelial network, and it says, talk to mushrooms, not cops. So... I'm really connected with that message. And also that was one of the things that put you on my radar. So I know this is, of course, a podcast, so it's kind of hard to describe the visual impact of this picture that you created or this artwork you created. But I mean, if you could just talk about a little bit about what your approach to art is, what are your subjects and what inspired you to create this awesome graphic? Yeah, sure. This specific image is actually a 
direct homage to another artist called N.O. Bonzo, who is from Portland. They have an image that, similar to mine, has a figure sitting, but they are surrounded by flowers and vines and leaves. And the mess, it says, talk to plants, not cops. Mm. And I love that image and I love that message, but I thought that a fungal perspective was really a necessary addition to that kind of message. The actual form of the figure in my image is based on photo reference of myself. So it's kind of, I suppose, a self-portrait in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the overall composition and conception was really largely inspired by that other artist and the way that I guess that intersected with my more specialized interest in fungi. I love plants too, but I, I absolutely do not have a green thumb or anything like that. And I have a lot more personal experience with fungi and what they can provide for us. I do with plants, specifically from entheogenic perspective. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, you know, listeners on the show, of course, will be familiar with some of the things we've talked about with psilocybin mushrooms. And of course, you know, with my background being a mycologist and having done research in mycology, we definitely are mycophiles. This is definitely a, a mushroom stands podcast. But what is it about the fungal world that you find so artistically inspirational? Yeah, on a superficial kind of aesthetic level, mushrooms and fungi more broadly are beautiful creatures. They have embodied so many different forms. I'm somebody who thinks very visually, and fungi offer me different ways to think visually due to just the geometry of their bodies, the, the shapes that they grow into and how diverse that those forms can be. They inspire me a lot more ways than just simple aesthetics, though. I consider myself an anarchist, an anarcho-communist specifically, and the fungi can really exemplify both of these human systems in their own way their bodies are anarchic in that they don't have a centralized nervous system they have essentially non-differentiated cells they can all do everything that they can do unlike an animal body that contains very separate systems and structures and a centralized brain they are communist in their mycorrhizal form. They redistribute nutrients. They redistribute chemical messages throughout entire ecosystems. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned psilocybin, and that's what a lot of people think of when they see my talk to mushrooms, not cops image. That's certainly a big part of it. But it's so much more than that. I think we have so much to learn from fungi and all of their different forms. They really show us the ways in that cooperation and collaboration are as much, if not more, a factor of evolution as competition. Yeah, I. that's one of the things about having my graduate work with mycorrhizal fungi that I found very inspiring is that when 
we as humans are studying systems, we're always imposing our bias on them. And so for the longest time, there's this colonial framework that, that supports this idea of white supremacy and patriarchy that they're survival of the fittest. And if you go only looking for competition, that's all you're going to find. But the moment you can look at nature and allow yourself to see all the ways that everything is so interconnected, then it becomes a much more complex and in some ways affirming picture that really competition is only a very small part of the way that nature interacts. And ultimately, everything is in some sort of symbiosis. And I know you also use they, them pronouns. And I, of course, one of the things about developing my non-binary identity was in part acknowledging that I am a multitude, that my gender is fungal. I don't have this strict idea of the binaries because having studied fungi and gotten to know fungi so intimately, fungi don't have genders. They just have mating types. And some, like, I believe there's a species of fungi that has something like 23,000 different mating types. And fungi really just take all of these ideas of survival of the fittest and these, like, colonial systems of dominance and oppression, and it they completely turn it on its head. And they are there to offer us a framework from which there are systems of care and systems of collaboration that make a much more robust and diverse ecosystem than these ideas of just everything is competing after each other. And I know you had started reading the book Entangled Life that um, I'm about halfway through it. I haven't quite finished it yet but yeah i actually just finished chapter four the minute that we got on. oh that's call. so cool yeah yeah that's a definitely like a must read any listeners out there it's also an audiobook if you want to listen to the author read it entangled life is that related to the cosmos sheldrake yes song? because merlin sheldrake is the name of the author Yes. Uh, are they related? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we should look this up. <laughs> are they both children of Rupert? Because Rupert Sheldrake is a fascinating thinker in his own right. For a lot of people, it can veer into pseudoscience. I have my own opinions about some of his ideas, some that I attach to more than others. But if both Cosmo and... I know Merlin is Rupert's son, but maybe Cosmo is also... His child. I have to look this up because I listened to the part where Merlin, the author of Entangled Life, basically got to live and spend time with Terrence McKenna on the island of Hawaii. And it's like, well, of course you became a mycologist if Terrence McKenna was your uncle. <laughs> what a life. I can't even imagine having that sort of great thinker around and being able to influence you in your early studies. I was thinking I might have met Merlin at a MS or Mycological Society of America meeting because, you know, people in mycology, well, it used to be much smaller, right? You know, there was only so many people who were like studying this. And then Merlin specifically studies mycorrhizal fungi. So, you know, back when I was still in grad school, I think I met him at an MSA meeting. But yeah, the book 
is just very fascinating. The way that the author conveys a lot of this, what would be kind of dry information about that you would get from scientific papers, and then articulates it in this very interesting and meaningful way. And the book came on my radar when I was visiting my advisor back in at the University of Mississippi. So shout out to Dr. Hoxima, who is my master's advisor, and he was having his mycology students read the book for the mycology class. So he was saying that it's just like one of the best books on mycorrhizal fungi that you, you can read. And of course, they don't just talk about mycorrhizal fungi. They talk about a lot of other types of fungi. They talk about slime molds and using slime molds as a decision tree to basically solve different types of problems and also figure out creative solutions to things like um, traffic issues. You can use slime molds and build them in sort of environments and see how they solve different types of problems that are presented to them and then take that information and employ it to things like city planning. And that's just the, the tip of the iceberg with which you know, the fungal world has to teach us. And the fact that really we don't have a very good idea of how much fungal diversity there is on the planet because we don't, we haven't looked, right? <laughs> and, you know, having come from the background of graduate school where I was constantly having to write grants and beg for money to do my research, there's a lot of really good research that never gets done because of the very small amount of money that funds it and capitalist interest you know that reminds me of when i was going out finding a whole bunch of lbms <laughs> or little brown mushrooms yes. and i was wanting to know what specific kind of little brown mushroom is this and uh, like uh, nothing <laughs> there's just so many little brown mushrooms around that they don't even bother to differentiate them it's annoying yeah yeah it's the same thing within botany you have what we call dycs which is damn yellow composites there's a lot of different the way that you would speciate little brown mushrooms or lbms is through micro microscopy techniques and also using potassium chloride to see if there's a reaction. I mean, there's there's definitely dichotomous keys that will take you through the effort of figuring out what that species of LBM is. But it's also, there is a point where you could possibly have stumbled on a new species. And that is not uncommon, especially here in the Pacific Northwest, where we have so much fungal diversity that you know, we just don't have the the funding to give a good study what the true fungal diversity is. And that's, you know, the the in the beginning of the book, they were talking about all these estimates of what the fungal world diversity looks like. And at this point, we maybe know about like 10%, if not less, of what the total fungal diversity is. And that is, you know, I don't know how in capitalism we can <laughs> secure more funding, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. The fact is that there's just so much we don't know about fungi, and there's so much there that fungi, fungi have to teach us. And 
Yeah, like, obviously, psilocybin is a hot topic right now. In fact, I think the next episode we're going to release is actually with one of the first four psilocybin facilitators here in the state of Oregon. One of my friends, um, Doug, Dr. Doug Wingate. And so, obviously, entheogens and psychedelics are super hot right now, but they aren't even very beginning of how much fungi are trying to help us save the world you know there's psyllin being one of the very very Mm -hmm. obvious Mm -hmm. examples and and you know in in entangled life i even just in the prologue chapter he talks about medicines for cancer and things that are already in wide use that have a fungal origin yeah there's so much of our lives that fungi are sort of the invisible current and we don't even realize it you know there's even uh the citric acid and mass mm-hmm. food production yeah mm. yeah so kind of moving on just a, a little bit uh you are one of several visual artists that we have on this podcast, and uh, I kind of—I'd like to know what your thoughts are on AI, um, like AI art, and or do you think, or do you employ it in your own creative process at all? Yeah, so this is obviously something that has been coming up a lot in the last year or so as these machine learning technologies take very radical leaps in advancement and also just accessibility. I personally do not implement any forms of AI or machine learning into my work right now. This isn't really because of any kind of grand ethical statement about the technology itself, but more so about how this technology has been funded and implemented under capitalism and the ways in which it is a direct threat to the livelihood of creatives. You know, SAG-AFTRA and the WGA have been striking, and part of what they're fighting for is to not lose their livelihood to these technologies and even lose their ownership of their own physical images. Yeah, well... Sorry, go on. Oh, sorry. I was going to say the, the WGA strike is, it did end and they did have a, I think they did have a provision that prevent AI writing from scripts, though I think the SAG-AFTRA strike is still ongoing. But go on. Um, yeah, I've, I've heard of some anecdotes of artists feeding some of these models solely with their own artwork to then produce images in their own style and based on their own work, which I can't really find any reason to be against that necessarily. But so many of these models were taught using artwork without the consent or compensation of the artist. And under capitalism, when we have to fight to have our basic needs met, that isn't really something I wish to contribute to, yeah. but mm-hmm. but that that has more to do with larger social structures than the technology itself. I believe there there are definitely ways we can implement this technology to reduce human suffering. 
but that is not the priority under capitalism. The priority is to raise the profit margin. Absolutely. I would say there are ways that you can use AI to not necessarily create a new thing out of nothing, but to enhance the quality of something that you've already made. I'm currently thinking of the brand spanking new Beatles single that we just got now and then, and so part of the reason we are getting a Beatles single in 2023 and not in 1995 was um, after John died, Paul McCartney went up to Yoko and asked if he could have access to some of the recordings that John had made after he had retired from performing in so that he and the rest of the Beatles could potentially make some posthumous singles, and Yoko agreed, and they made three of those singles and, and released those in 1995. But there was a fourth song that's that was Now and Then, and at the time, George walked out because he was very dissatisfied with the quality of John's recording. He couldn't really separate the piano from the vocal, and so he wasn't interested in the project, though he did record a couple guitar lines. Paul McCartney kept them, and basically in hope that AI, or not AI, or just technology would improve. And fast forward to the 2021 Get Back documentary, Peter Jackson creates an AI algorithm that is able to separate piano from vocals and all of a sudden they're able to improve the quality of john's recording and two years later we have a new single that is a fascinating intersection where the the interests of capital actually did benefit the art and the artists but that i imagine those kinds of things will only happen with big names like peter mm -hmm. jackson and the beatles I am inclined to agree with you that in terms of accessibility, I don't know if Peter Jackson open sourced his AI or not, but I should check after the recording to see if, if he did. I'll let you guys know. Yeah. Well, and when it comes to like, there's a lot of promise with AI in terms of just helping make our lives a lot easier. I know in my recent professional work, I found that AI certainly makes doing things with like databasing so much easier because it can automatically um, assess what your choice is going to be before you even type it in. And that makes things so much easier than having to constantly retype in the same amount of information. But then when we had Tikva on, she was very adamant about how AI is basically taking jobs away from actual artists. And this is something that Buckminster Fuller, as a futurist, a technologist, was saying is that we'll reach a point where there will not be jobs, there will not be an ability for people to make an income, and that AI and technology will take on a lot of the burdens of what before was gainfully like income and so and then we're seeing that over and over and over again with automation and that we're going to have to reach a point where our society starts having to have universal basic income because there's just not enough ability to make any living anymore and we're starting to see this with a lot of jobs that were before like really high living not a high living but high earning incomes like lawyers thanks to ai 
we don't really need lawyers anymore. We don't need paralegals. These AI programs can pass the bar. As long as we're not making them the judge. Right, yeah. Judges right now still have a job. But another a part of the economy that used to be one of those things that you could make a lot of a decent living on and that now is starting to become very difficult is being a real estate agent. AI has taken over a lot of the things that a real estate agent used to be able to do. And you can just look it through databases. And honestly, you just go directly to a buyer and the bank and you, you can cut out the middleman of the real estate agent. And you're seeing that now with, I have several friends who are real estate agents and with the way the economy is right now and how low, how high housing prices are, they're basically not being able to still have the income that they used to. And so we're starting to see this just like huge shift in our society where a lot of these jobs that used to give people very high like earning incomes are now completely disappearing. And it is one of those things where this is only going to continue like every there's going to be more and more things that AI can do much easier than humans and just like and better. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Like these <laughs> these self-driving trucks for hauling stuff cross country. They don't fall asleep at the wheel. No. No. Yeah. They don't need to be drug tested <laughs> constantly. You know. Something that I think is really important to keep in mind and that has made me hesitant to take a hard stand against AI in a broad sense is that, like, like you say, it's, it's um, automation is taking away all of these jobs, but it's the fact that we've organized society in a way that these things are necessary for basic survival that makes yeah. that a threat in the first place. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, honestly, I feel like trucking needs to be automated. The like trucking is a like a really hard job. You're driving for hours, sometimes 12, 14 hours across roads. You, you know, there's just a lot of danger. And then it, it's not good for the the people who are in these positions, right? Because if you're in a confined space, with your body in this kind of like stressful situation where you have to be constantly alert and, you know, it's it's going to cause like atrophying in your muscles. And of course, a lot of truckers end up having to be dependent on substances like methamphetamines to stay awake. That is not something that I think a human being should have to keep doing if we have some technology to take that away. But then what are we going to do with those human beings who consider that to be their livelihood? <laughs> you know, even even on top of that, the a lot of the other external working conditions that a lot of truckers have to deal with are just simply inhumane. Um, part of the reason I, I know this is I worked in uh, grocery for years and I talked with a lot of these truckers and a lot of times you see these these truckers they're basically doing like a rent to, a glorified rent to own debt trap for their own trucks they are responsible for their own like maintenance gas oil changes all that type of stuff a lot of times they have to work for so long hours 
they're not a, a yeah they're not even paid by the hour they're paid by the mile so like if they're at like a checkpoint where someone is just going through all of their shit or just delayed for several hours they're not getting paid for that right and it incentivizes them to do things like use substances to work longer hours than they oh, would yeah. naturally be able to mhm yeah yeah i mean that's the thing under capitalism with with these substance abuse issues people are taking them so that they can survive and cope in capitalism you know this is what the cost of of trying to taking these very inhuman standards and imposing them on a human being of course you know substance abuse is going to be the result and that yeah it's it's just and you know bringing this back to your art your art is like i don't even want to say political but there's a energy about it that is 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 steeped in resistance and one of your more recent pieces is this awesome piece of art i see you seem to have a lot of femmes as your subjects which i really like yeah yeah please talk about that a little bit more yeah i mean i started making very explicitly politically charged artwork in 2020 in the wake of the george floyd rebellion and the just the the mass awakening to political reality that came with that for so many people i've been um i've been politically engaged for as long as i can remember yeah but that moment really showed me how my position in the world as an artist and my positions politically were not separate things and that you, you know the these energies were being expressed through my work even without it being explicit and so it was not a far jump to to make them explicit as far as what you talk about i represent a lot of femme figures and i try to be very intentional about representing a lot of non-white figures yeah um just because you know my position as a a white person could could make it very easy to to just make that the the standard i particularly love your spider punk art oh yes i actually um you know that that movie got delayed multiple times because of covid um interfering with the production and i had plan to have that artwork ready for the release of the movie and then the movie came out and I was like oh I would have done so many things differently after being inspired by this movie hmm. that actually um, brings up a thought I had earlier in our, mm -hmm. our discussion about AI animation especially 3D animation is an industry that utilizes machine learning a lot yeah but it's it's not in a way it's a, a very collaborative use of machine learning with human artists which is something that i think we can look at as a potentially ethical path forward for this technology i i would say part of the reason that disney switched from 2d to 3d animation the argument was that it was cheaper the reason that it was cheaper was not because of the technology it was because 3D artists were not unionized, and 2D was. Fascinating. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a really interesting distinction. Do you know if that is still the case? 
that is still the case, and they are currently trying to change that. The, the Spider-Verse films in particular are something that they utilize a lot of both 2D hand-drawn and 3D animation. And I'd be curious about the specifics of how, how that contracting works. Yeah, because if, if we remember, like, a lot of those Disney Renaissance movies, they, those had gigantic heckin' budgets that were even bigger than a lot of the early 3D animation projects like uh, Toy Story, uh, Monsters, Inc., that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right, because they can uh, were in a position to underpay workers. Mm-hmm. It was a brand new market that they could exploit. And it worked. Well, and just with the way that we are progressing with both media and, you know, we're, we're, what AI is taking us towards in the entertainment industry is this almost, uh, you know, hollow deck experience, right? Where you can basically script your own movie. And you can interact with the movie and the movie is going to have points where you make decisions as the viewer that then change the script of the movie. I mean, that was what a lot of the SAG protests and the strike was about was this sort of apocalyptic future where actors are basically paid very like little amount of money to be digitally animated and basically have their likeness used in these deep fakes that then become movies that people can then project themselves into and that's something that you know in the next couple of years we're going to start to see a lot of and hopefully with the strike and the hard-won victories that they were able to secure actors will still have an ability to make a living off of their their art as well as all the, all the movie production assistants and you know people involved in making these films but we are going to start to see this very almost personalized way of interacting with media that is essentially like in Star Trek's holodeck where yeah there's there's going to be that opportunity to really become part of the media that you're consuming almost like a video game that is also a movie and that's really just going to be the next step in media and as we continue to progress with our technology it's inevitable that this technology will have to be incorporated because our sense of what is entertainment is going to have to keep being pushed further and further you know, the envelope has to keep being pushed forward because the same old things aren't really captivating audiences like they used no, to. No, we're desensitized to it like a drug. Right. Right. And it's, you know, one of the things about, and I know you, Ruby, have been talking about this, is with the conflict in Gaza, is we have a entire infrastructure now where we can have real-time images and videos of children being murdered. And this is something that's like constantly in our nervous system, constantly being bombarded over TikTok and in the news. And at what point is our, our human nervous system just not able to keep up with the technology? And it just seems 
it, it keeps getting further and further. The disparity of our human brain's ability to keep up with the, the technology that is evolving around us, is it just keeps getting more and more of a disparity. Y'all agree? <clears throat> yeah, it's absolutely an, an information overload. I I don't think I our technology is evolving faster than than you know a mammalian brain that takes millions and millions of years to evolve when we've gone from just telecommunication to the internet in at decades the same time like what I'm I'm thinking about this is I'm a bit younger and I'm very much against what the hell Israel is doing and I'm against all violence on all sides like I don't approve of what Hamas is doing either but I'm not going to ignore that what is happening is in any sense proportional but the the thing that I'm starting to realize now is that the the people that we really need to be talking to about this kind of thing are the people who are completely neutral about this because if you can convince the people who are neutral to stay neutral then the people who are doing the genocide are going to win. Like, the the people who are silent are basically just co-signing the genocide. And one of the things that we need to recognize is, like, who are the, like, neutral people in this right now? It's people who are, quote-unquote, unaffected by this, as in, like, they are in a financially safe enough position to where these genocides won't adversely affect you directly. So that that's largely older people, people who tend to have a little bit more wealth, either because they're business owners or just have had more time to be around and accumulate. Those people tend to be white, and those people uh, tend to have been sub subjugated to about 25 years of Islamophobia. So, <laughs> so yeah, we, we have our work cut out for us. These are the people that we need to appeal to. Yeah, and I mean, as the sort of elder millennial here in the room, it gives me a lot of hope that the younger generation is just not fucking having this shit anymore right you know i know like with your artwork jesse that piece i had referred to earlier you the message is like no more borders you know like i want to envision a world where we don't have national borders where we do have you know i don't want to like scare people with the whole one world government but i envision a world like star trek where we don't have this Fully automated luxury gay yes, space. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Live long and prosper in that reality. You know, like that is what I want. And this, the whole thing with, you know, Israel and Gaza, this is just another reason, you know, that this whole concept of nation states, it needs to die. You know, the, this whole delineation between who gets to have rights and who gets to basically be considered subhuman on the basis of like, which national border did you happen to be born under? Or you, there's just, there's so much that 
this whole I- nationalism idea is is just causing humanity to not progress like it is it is essentially keeping us back from being able to consider one another another human being i mean that's one of the reasons why israel has been able to perpetrate this is because there is just this sort of like wide-ranging idea of oh well you know israel is this zionist state that was created after world war ii because all the white supremacist colonial powers were like oh yeah sorry jews sorry that you were um subjected to the holocaust so let's give them this entire part of what was their homeland and i'm I'm totally condensing a lot of like world politics yeah years and years of history being <laughs> right right but the the fact of the matter is is that israel was a colonial creation after world war ii it wasn't this continual idea that at the time when the world had had all the borders had been shaken up they could reconstruct it and you know, I have really good friends in Israel, and we've talked about the Palestinian issue before. And the thing is, is like most Israelis, especially our age, they don't really believe in this Zionist lie that Israel is some sort of like mandated by the Abrahamic God to exist. They genuinely want to just, a lot of them are, are, atheists or agnostic and they don't really you know they they only culturally practice judaism because you know just you and you and i would practice like christianity right it's just because it's the wider culture it's not because they have any sort of religious affiliation with it even a lot of hasids and orthodox jews are Mm -hmm. anti-zionist on fundamentally jewish for fundamentally Jewish reasons. Well, yeah, if we if we go back in time to when the Ottomans were ruling the land that is now Palestine, uh, you'll see that about 80% of the people who lived in the area were Muslims, about 10% were Christians, about 3% were Jews, and the other 7% was pretty much like a hodgepodge of everything else. And largely, the Ottomans were tolerant of religion with the exception of a higher tax rate for non-Muslims. Christians, Jews, and Muslims in Palestine lived in peace before the creation of Israel. And even now, not every Israeli is Jewish. Israel does not speak for Judaism. Palestine doesn't speak for Islam. Not even, there are still a lot of Christian Palestinians. There are Jewish Palestinians. This is fundamentally not a conflict of religion, but land. Yes, this is a conflict of nation states, imperial interests, and colonialism. Mm -hmm. It's really a deflection to frame it in a a religious context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of people that are, you know, I guess considered Gen, I don't know, is Gen Z or, you know, Zillennials, the ones, uh, you, you know, like y'all that are on the, the cusp between millennial and the next generation, that, you know, nation states and, and nationalities and this whole idea about like having sort of like some sort of affinity or obligation to the the nation that you're born that's that's completely being disrupted by 
thanks to the internet, you know, because when you have something more in common with, you know, a Korean YouTuber that likes, that has the same weird special interest as you and you feel more camaraderie with someone on the other side of the world than you do with your neighbor because they have a giant Trump flag flying in there. Um, Yard that speaks to the idea that this whole idea of like nation states is it's caustic to human relationships and it's creating more suffering and trauma. And, you know, from one of the things that we have been talking a lot in more other episodes, like our Samhain episode, is how the paranormal is in a lot of ways an outgrowth of trauma. And so, you know, in places like the Middle East, where there's been just so much trauma and there's been so much pain and suffering perpetrated on all the people there, and you just have this incredible, dense field of human trauma and suffering that just obviously it's thousands and thousands of years old and there's a lot of complications. But, you know, with this new generation of of, of human beings, there's just so much that this whole idea of nation states are completely a lie, right? They're they're not serving anyone anymore. They're just creating these like false dichotomies and hierarchies that are just producing more trauma and suffering. And that as we as humanity move in a direction that hopefully we won't all just like annihilate each other, that this will eventually become a very tertiary thing, if if at all, in the way that humans structure themselves. But then, of course, nation states are also very intimately involved in the maintenance of late stage capitalism. So there's also that tension. And that's why I feel like artists like you, Jesse, you have such an important role because you know, we're all, we all need to be envisioning a better world, but you actually create those, those images with your, you know, artistic talent. And, and that's one of the things I really was excited to have you on and introduce our listeners to your artwork, because your work is, is so, it's like resistance, but it's also this hopeful message that. It's exactly that. Um, I have this, I wrote down this James Baldwin quote that is, James Baldwin says, quote, the role of the artist is exactly the same as the role of the lover. If mm. I love you, I have to make you conscious of the things you don't see. Oh. And and I, I think that that's really it. You know, I, I also wrote down this Nina Simone quote, you know, those are two extremely radical Black artists from U.S. history. Nina Simone says, an artist's duty, as far as I'm concerned, is to reflect the times. Yes. And and it really is a duty, I believe. I don't believe in apolitical artwork. Mm -hmm. Your artwork is either challenging the status quo or it is complacent in reinforcing the status quo. Yeah. Yeah. And your artwork is the resistance, right? It's this future that liberals and witches want. And yeah, how does this intersect with your spirituality? Yeah, for me, in a lot of ways, there's not really a separation Mm -hmm. between these two things. For me, you know, I'm not necessarily married to any singular tradition. I've spent time exploring quite a few of them. I, I largely will define myself as a pagan 
and a pantheist and artwork, any type of artwork, writing, music, dance, what I do, creating images, drawing, painting, it, it's an act of creation. And, mm-hmm. and when, when we talk about divinity in, in all cultures, we're talking about creation. This comes down to like specific practices like sigil magic. I I really love the work of Austin Osmond Spare, who developed mm-hmm. a system of sigil magic that I use in my own work quite a bit. It's really, in a lot of ways, magic is what we had before we divided human wisdom into separate subjects like art and science and the further differentiation that exists in those broad categories. So it, it's really a bringing back together of these different things in a, an act of co-creation with whatever word speaks to you, God, the universe, it, reality, nature. Yeah. Yeah. This reminds me of Another one of those foundational works that I I really draw a lot of inspiration from, The Artist's Way, which I think I sent to you, Ruby. And The Artist's Way is, yes, yeah, it's such an important way to like reframe is as a creative, because in this late stage capitalism, we're always taught that you have to constantly hustle, you have to promote yourself, you're in competition. And the the beautiful thing about the artist way, and one of the reasons why I just find it so important to reference in any of these conversations is that the act of creating whatever it is that you feel is part of your creative purpose on this planet, in this incarnation, it is in itself divine. And that is one of the things that whenever I am engaged with other creatives and or I'm in a collaborative creative relationship with somebody, I'm a really big cheerleader for every sort of creative endeavor. Because in my opinion, that when we are engaged in the act of creating our art, we are close to our divine selves. And that any sort of act of awe of creating art is something to be celebrated and something to be encouraged and something to be uplifted. And that is one of the ways that I always approach my creative community is like, here we all are, like, let's all support each other. Let's all encourage one another to be creative. And maybe the artwork that you make, you know, it's not something that makes you instantly popular. Not a lot of people look at it. That's not the point. The point is that you are still creating something and you don't know how something's going to resonate with people once you're not around. I mean, how many famous artists, like one of my favorite podcasts, Missing Witches, they just did a entire episode on Hilda um, Klintoff. Uh, Yes. And, you know, like for the longest time, her artwork, she kind of had an idea that she wasn't going to become a famous artist until she was dead. And the way that she designed to have a lot of her pieces in different galleries and the way that she wanted them in the spiral shape. And it wasn't until that, yeah, it was all posthumously appreciated. And somehow she knew that about her artwork. But now her artwork is world famous. And that is in large part because even though she wasn't getting recognized while she was alive for doing it, she 
she kept going. And, you know, that's what I tell people like, yeah, you're that song that you wrote and you, you maybe put up and not many people seem to really resonate now. In many years, you have no idea you might be the next TikTok sensation. You just don't know, you know? It's like when you create art, the art is allowed to speak for itself, whether or not you are there to moderate. And sometimes that can be a good thing. Sometimes that can be a bad thing. But it the, the, the act and also the encouraging people to create and helping people get resource to create. I mean, you know, this is something Ruby and I, we've been talking a lot about because with musicians, musicians, it's so fucking hard to be a musician. And musicians are always having in a lot of ways to deal with so much adversity just to produce their music and then the fact that music isn't cheap right Mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah there's there's just there's so much that goes into producing any piece of music that you hear and yet we don't value music you know, just having to see, having been in a relationship with musicians now, I just, it hurts my heart how much they struggle and have to go through just to get their music out there. And, you know, that doesn't have to be that way. The Mm -hmm. courage to perform. When I put my artwork in somebody's, in front of somebody's eyes, they're not looking at me. The, right. the judgment is, is in in some way separated from me but mus- musicians don't necessarily have that my favorite collaborative work or commission work if 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 you want to call it that is, is to produce images for musicians oh yeah because i don't have unfortunately i don't have a musical bone in my body but i have such a rich experience of music it's it's you know a whole nervous system experience it's not relegated to the sense of hearing and i i truly believe that music is the first art it is it's the root of all art you know when a newborn human comes out the first thing we do is sing you might not like the song but that's what's happening and it's to be able to produce images to accompany music is kind of in some ways the closest I get to the process. And it's, it's always since the, the first commission I ever did was for a musician. And from then to now, it's my favorite type of collaborative work to do. And, you know, that's sort of the, the peak, right. Of this beautiful artistic collaboration is, the the musicians inspire folks like us that are the visual artists and that you know with music i'm not a musician i like to sing i'm pretty good at it i can definitely keep a beat pretty well but i'm not going to be constructing songs i'm not going to be you know learning uh how to annotate music or anything like that and also just like i love watching musicians perform especially when they're in their flow state and they're just up there just you know being this conduit to music and it is really just such a 
intimate experience that then the musician has to translate and manage with an entire audience depending on how big that is and you see like like I just got to see Tool recently at the Moda Center and I tell you what Maynard in his 60s he can still just fucking rock me like he did when I was in high school and he's just like up there channeling all of this energy of thousands of people who are just like watching him and just like vibing with him and it's it's such a powerful thing and it's it's something that only a few musicians really get to to get to that point where they're resourced enough to be able to say all right this is my vision this is how i want it to articulate this is the the you know i have all the resources and musical things i need to really bring my vision to life and i get paid well for it you know that is not the experience of most musicians anymore it's it's like okay i'm going to get 200 dollars for toting what is thousands of dollars worth of equipment into a crowded space of, you know, mostly drunk people that, you know, maybe they'll they'll follow up and become huge fans or maybe it'll just be forgettable. But there's just so much that goes into creating music, even more than I would say other types of creative endeavors, you know, Yes, visual art does take a lot of certain types of medium, but there is also, you know, you and I, we do a lot of visual art that is digital. And so, you know, like once you get a couple of the tools and implements, it's it's pretty much just like you can create your art and not have to worry about buying all this new fancy equipment. But with music... That has for me largely been a, a resource-based yeah. decision yeah. and a, an accessibility-based decision. Mm-hmm. Like when I carry a painting around with me to from one location to another, I'm putting it at a lot of risk of damage. Right. But I can carry my iPad and a stylus anywhere I go and work in any setting. You know, when I'm working on a painting, I need space to lay out everything I, I need to be protected from the elements, but but yeah, musicians don't necessarily have that other option. No, no. Same. You just said if you take a painting out, you're basically exposing it to the elements. The same is true with an instrument, especially like yeah, just for different reasons. Especially like any like wooden instrument. Yeah, and there's also this whole thing about as you you know having been in relationships with musicians musicians are always having to upgrade their stuff (laughs) there's all and -hmm. i would say oh yeah go on i i I, it's unrelated oh i just the fact that music isn't cheap but you know this more than anyone (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah I, i would say in terms of accessibility like and teaching yourself about music theory and all that that kind of stuff all like mu- learning music theory really is is learning how to read a language you already know how to speak. It's really like the first language. Mm. Mm-hmm. When we develop as newborn babies, we are just taking in 
buttloads of information, like from everywhere. Everything that we see here, we are processing, and music is absolutely included in that. And a lot of our preferences in music, of course, do develop over the course of our entire lives, but like a lot of the foundation of what becomes our taste happens right there at the beginning. And even before, you do see people playing Mozart with their headphones over their bellies <laughs> while they're pregnant. <laughs> and it's that, that pre-linguistic cognition, you know, mm. before we're taught to use the technology of language to differentiate these different incoming, you know, this incoming sensory information, we can kind of allow it all this sort of equal footing. Mm -hmm. So you're not differentiating, oh, this rock and roll and this classical and whatever kind of categories that we're taught to divide information into. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, and this was something we talked about with the anthropologist that we had on to talk about prehistoric and paleolithic art and societies is that we develop like our cognitive processes are the earlier cognitive processes were more music like we understand music before we understand language and that there's something about the tones that you hear that you can feel an emotion from and not even it could be singing in a completely different language that you don't even know and you can still connect with that on an emotional level and that i think is one of the the powers that people like you ruby who are who are bards they have is is this ability to connect on a very like a emotional level to a human experience that yeah, visual art has that ability as well, but music is just such a, it's such a, right, it is a primal thing that is is so universal. And even people who are deaf can still feel like rhythms and, and, and that has a emotional resonance with them. And that that is one of the things that is one of the reasons I'm so captivated by musicians is just because you know, they have a power to be this conduit. And yet in our late stage capitalism, they have to just constantly suffer to be able to be that conduit. You get reduced to writing jingles for commercials when it's this fundamentally magical human experience that goes back to maybe even pre-human ancestors. I would I would also push back slightly just a little bit against the idea that music is a universal language. I kind of tweak it slightly because similar to how language works, like I was just talking with how how babies develop language and taste music from basically the get-go. The same happens with preferences in music, and that and different areas of the world have entirely different tuning systems, instrumentation, orchestration preferences that would otherwise completely sound alien to an untrained ear. And so a lot of times you'll hear something that is, you know, another culture would call music that a lot of Western people would call noise. I don't call it noise, but I would not necessarily say that that 
experience is universal. Like, I, I would say that, like language, music is a universal thing that we have, but music is not a universal language, if that makes sense. Filtered through these cultural contexts. That makes sense. Precisely. I've heard, you know, vaguely kind of about what you're talking about. Specifically, I've heard of different Eastern and Chinese musical systems that are entirely different from classical European musical systems. But as a non-musician, a lot of it goes over my head. I would highly recommend listening to uh, or Javanese gamelan. They have an entirely different tuning system for, from ours. So like in the uh, Western standard equal temperament keys on a, on a piano, one octave has 12 notes evenly dispersed between them roughly. In the Javanese gamelan system, an octave is evenly spread across seven notes. So like it sounds a little bit like what in Western notation we would recognize as a whole tone scale, but the tunings are just a little bit different. So it just sounds a little bit out of tune for us to hear. Yeah. That's fascinating. I'll definitely have to look into that. In Entangled Life, Merlin refers to a Central African mm-hmm. song about called Women Gathering Mushrooms. And I looked it up on YouTube and played it as I was reading. And it was such a radically different form of music. Um, he In the book, he talks a lot about how the structure of the music is decentralized in a way that almost mirrors the way that the fungal network is decentralized. Yeah, and you can't really listen to one individual voice. It's 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 everyone's voice together that sort of creates Yeah, there's the music. no lead. Right. Right. And each each woman in the forest collecting mushrooms is singing her own song, but yet it is with the rest of the the voices that produces the music and yeah i i meant to look that up i'll have to definitely put that in the show notes but yeah this just idea that melodies and having this very organic way of producing melodies and in music and how this can be very informative in all these other ways of both understanding nature and ourselves. And yeah, and like, yes, the music itself is not a universal language, but every human society has had music, has their own form of music. And so, and then of course, there's evidence that even before we were considered human, we had a form of music and that this is one of the things that actually makes us human is this creation and collaboration of of music. And it's funny because we were talking to a visual artist and yet (laughs) are having these big like metacognitive discussions about music. And but yeah, I mean, this is the one of the beautiful things about both art and understanding from this collaborative framework is that we are all just nodes in this mycelial network of creatives and that we can 
be mutualistic to each other by supporting each other's art and creativity and that in in itself will help inspire each other to create and that is one of the ways that we can resist the capitalism that just wants us the to, individualism um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah that idea that we can pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and that we should ignore the suffering and trauma of other human beings because we get ours and just the scarcity mindset that has perpetuated just so much harm and essentially enabled this late stage capitalism to continue to have such a hold on us. And that's why I think people like you, Jesse, with your artwork and, you know, the musicians, the bards, the people that want to envision and imagine a better world, why it's so important to center your voices and encourage people to take part in this artwork and appreciate it because this is how we create a better world and resource more of our musicians and have artwork that inspires us to acknowledge our own shared humanity. So yeah, bringing this lovely conversation to its conclusion, Jesse, do you have any projects or things that you would want to share with the listeners in terms of how they can see your artwork and maybe even support you? Yeah. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, this conversation has to end. I could go on and on. I, I don't have a whole lot of specific stuff in the works right now. I, I'm working on some artwork for a local funk group a project that they're doing, but it hasn't been formally announced yet. So I don't have a lot of details to give on that. Um, I, I believe that will be coming out later this month, though. I'm going to be part of a group gallery show at Ooh. the Gretchen Shoot Art Gallery at Chemeketa mm. Community College this month. There's going to be a, a reception on Wednesday the 15th. Uh, I don't know when this show is going to to come out, but but that will be available until the first week of December. And there's going to be a ton of local artists there. I have a, uh, a zine project called God Save the Zine that uh, you can find at any of the Promethean school zine stands at places like the Book Bin and Blast Off Vintage. As far as um, looking at my artwork and contacting me or connecting with me, the best place is Instagram. I'm at jesse.lee underscore art. And I also have an account that's at God Save the Zine with a period in between each word. I am technically on Facebook and Twitter, but I'm not super active there. Facebook is the art of Jesse Lee and Twitter is Jesse Lee underscore art. As far as in-person stuff, I don't have a lot scheduled until the spring. I do have one more market I'm going to be part of this month at TJ's Dispensary on Friday the 17th, where you can come pick up my work and find me. If you keep an eye on my socials, though, I will post once I have solidified more stuff like that in the future. Awesome. All right. Yeah, and I'll make sure to put all those links and... 
those of y'all who are our Patreon supporters at our $5 a month level will be receiving Jesse's artwork in the form of a sticker. So be on the lookout for that. And if you want to get a hold of that sticker without being a Patreon, we'll be sure to have it also on our Etsy. And you'll, of course, have your own copies available for purchase at the various different events you're going to be at. Awesome. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I'm excited to share this really rich conversation as well as your artwork with our audience and our listeners. So yeah, thank you again. And yeah, I'm excited to continue to follow your artwork and see all the incredible things that you will have and share with us yeah it was it was great this was my my first time being on a podcast after years and years of consuming them so it's it's a great first step into this world we really only covered like maybe half of my notes from the write-up <laughs> the questions you asked me yeah. so if, if you ever want to talk yeah. more in the future let's make that happen absolutely yeah absolutely i i Definitely, we would love to have you back on. Thank you so much to Jesse for coming on to the show, and thank you so much for the amazing artwork that we will be featuring in a sticker for this month's sticker exchange. We definitely hope to have them back at some point to talk more about art, political resistance, and witchcraft, and we're so excited to introduce y'all to their artwork. Yep. And then in the meantime, if you want to support our podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter, which is the main way that we're financially supporting this project. Our Discord server has become one of the main ways we interface with our listeners, especially Kingfisher. So shout out to my cousin-law, who is also one of our science witch coven. I just went on a mushroom foray and found a bunch of candy caps, Lactarius ruberus, that I will be dehydrating and gifting to members of our Science Witch Coven. And I will periodically be out in the forest and find something and want to share it with our awesome community. So I am going to be posting videos about how I found the candy caps and also how I prepared them on Discord for free for anyone to access. And then I'm going to be working on holiday cards for this year for our Patreon supporters at all levels. Our theme for this holiday season is the Yule Cats. So I've been getting some inspiration from one of my favorite cartoons, Hilda, to mm. channel into this holiday card for 2023. You can access this holiday card as well as all kinds of other bonus content for only $1 a month, which turns out to be one quarter a week in US dollars. At this level, you get to access extra bonus content as well as our early release episodes one day before they're put on the main RSS feed. So this is going to be the way that you can listen to us with an ad-free experience, so if you hate ads, please consider supporting us at that level. At our $5 a month, you will get roughly one sticker a month mailed to you by Angel. If you want to complete your collection and missed some of the stickers from previous months, or don't want to have a monthly subscription, you can purchase your stickers a la carte from our Etsy.
We also now have tapestries featuring Freya and soon to feature some of the other deities in our sticker exchange, so be sure to check that out if you liked a sticker but want it bigger. Finally, at our $10 a month level, you'll get access to our Science Witch Coven and my tarot and astrology practice, where I will read your tarot over Zoom and can give you insight into your birth chart. I'm working on getting with all the new Science Witch Coven members, including our newest member, Gigi, in Australia, which I'm really excited we have Australian listeners. That's just brings this whole new world connections and also makes me really try to not have such a Northern Hemisphere-centric view of the podcast. So thank you for that. I will be messaging all of y'all who haven't gotten your reading yet over the Patreon messenger, so be sure to check your messages and schedule a reading with me. We're always continuing to add more content over on YouTube, including videos from the Trans Telethon, as well as some extended content from uh, some of our more visual episodes and captioned videos of short form from our podcast series, Who's in Bloom? Our intention is to make our content more accessible to all of our followers, so please check us out over there and smack that subscribe button. Finally, we wanted to ask folks who listen to us on Spotify especially to give us a rating and review, as this will help get us more visibility with the algorithms that rule over our lives and they help our podcast get better resource so that we can continue to bring you all even more content on topics related to how spirituality and how science can interact and affirm one another. Mm -hmm. If you want to find us on the social medias, we are on threads and Instagram and Facebook as the Science Witch Podcast. And you can still find us on that dumpster fire of a website formerly known as Twitter at Science Witch Pod, at least when we post new episodes. If you want to check out the show notes and the transcripts from the episode, see our website at sciencewitchpodcast.com. And finally, again, if you hate social media, which I'm so fair at this point, you can still reach out and email us at questions at sciencewitchpodcast.com. And as always, until next time, live long and prosper. And blessed be.